Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Jennifer Doudna just won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. It's for her work on something called CRISPR. She's the smart one, so she'll explain it in a minute. Doudna and her collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, are only the sixth and seventh women in history to win chemistry's highest honor. Their work is groundbreaking, a fast and precise way to edit the genome. It's already been used to grow seedless tomatoes, double a dog's muscle mass, and treat people with sickle cell anemia. Someday, it could be used to make designer babies. But before we get to the complex ethics of playing God, we started with the basics. Let's explain the basic idea of CRISPR. It stands for, and I want you to say it because you'll say it correctly and I'll, I'll bollocks it, but it stands for... Clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Say that three times fast. (laughs) (laughs) You lost me at palindromic, (laughs) but uh, I know what a palindrome is, though, thank goodness. So explain very basically how it's different from before, because you didn't discover CRISPR. Francisco Mojica did. But talk about this breakthrough now. Well, I think it's important to point out that in bacteria, CRISPR works as an adaptive immune system, analogous to the way our own bodies fight infection. Uh, The mechanisms are different, but the principle is the same. Our bodies can adapt to viruses, learn how to fight them. And similarly in bacteria, the bacteria use the CRISPR pathway to do that. The characteristic of all of these CRISPR um, immunity systems is, is a distinctive pattern of DNA sequences that represents the storage mechanism for learning about a new virus and then learning how to fight back against it. So it's bacteria protecting itself. Exactly. Yep. And I was interested in this because I thought it was incredibly exciting that this whole kingdom of life, that namely bacteria, might have adaptive immunity that had never been studied previously. Nobody knew about it. And so we wanted to understand it. And this is where the technology comes in, because in working with Emmanuel Charpentier and, and her team... This is your colleague who you won the Nobel Prize with? Correct. And so we were able to figure out exactly how this CRISPR bacterial immune system operates. And it works using a protein that can cut DNA precisely. And importantly, and this is the key to the technology, the cutting, the position, the sequence of DNA that gets cut is defined by a small molecule of RNA, which is a chemical cousin of DNA, that can be, after our work, controlled by scientists to uh, allow this uh, CRISPR protein called Cas9 to cut DNA at a place of our choosing. Right. And you're you're injecting this RNA in, correct? Yeah, there are different ways to put it in. You can inject it. You can program the cell to make it. It's, uh, it's rewriting uh, the code. You know, it's, it's taking an editor to the code like you might edit a Word document 
And so that just gives uh, scientists the ability to address questions they couldn't address before. And I think that, you know, it's fair to say that human beings now have a tool for manipulating DNA precisely in cells that puts in our hands the ability to control our fate, you know, control our genetic fate and that of all other organisms that we occupy the planet with. So it's a, it is a profound opportunity and, and also a, a big challenge to make sure that it's used responsibly. And so essentially, when you were discovering this, when this was your breakthrough, you compared it at one point to a good suspense novel. Can you explain that? Well, you know, science for me is always a good suspense novel. And this was, this was a particularly interesting volume of it. First of all, we thought, okay, there's evidence that this protein cuts DNA, but how does it do that? And so we did experiments to answer that question. It was a very cool answer. It was, well, this is a programmable protein. We can program it with these RNA molecules to cut a desired DNA sequence. And then I think the leap to the technology was appreciating that we could actually engineer it to be simpler than nature has done by creating a simpler way to make this little RNA molecule that does the programming. These bacteria were protecting themselves, and then they had a map for you of how they did it. Yeah, I'd call it a map, sure. Yeah, yeah. But here's something very important to appreciate. In bacteria, bacteria do not use CRISPR for genome editing, as far as we know. They use it to destroy viral DNA. That's what they do. Coming at them. It's coming at them, and they cut it up and destroy it. But once we understood how that worked we realized that we could use it differently in plant and animal cells and human cells because of fundamental biological differences in the way those cells deal with DNA breaks. So essentially what you invented is gene editing technology, but with scary precision. Well, I didn't, I didn't, at the time I wasn't thinking scary. I was thinking cool, you know, exciting. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We'll get to scary in a minute. But um, what was the question you asked yourself when you saw that? First question was, what is it doing? And then once we knew what it was doing, you could start to make connections and say, well, if it does this, then if we put it into these other types of cells, it's going to do that. You know, it's going to do genome editing. So where was the suspense moment? I think for us, you know, the suspense was kind of twofold. One was, how does it work? And and figuring that out. And the second was, is it actually going to be useful for genome editing? And, and testing that and showing that was, was just, you know, incredibly exciting. And so you worked with, you mentioned, uh, is it Dr. Charpentier? Yeah. Talk to me about that collaboration. I know I've heard about you meeting and everything else. How did you work together on it? Yeah. So, it was, you know, it's, it, we were in uh, three different countries. Emmanuel was in Sweden at the time. Her student was working, uh, Chris Chylinski working in Vienna and, and, and Martin Yannick and I working in Berkeley. So it was a lot of uh, international uh, coordination there, different time zones, et cetera. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because, you know, the project took off very quickly. They started to get exciting data right away. And So we were communicating back and forth, initially email and occasional Skype calls, you know, experiments and ideas and and thinking would be going on in one time zone. And then we'd go to bed and Emmanuel and her team would wake up and they would take over. And we felt like we were sort of working 24-7 that way. Right. I want to run through some of the high hopes people have for this technology and get it straight, what is actually possible. I kind of think of it like you don't know what people are going to make once you invent, say, the iPhone. You don't know what the, the the killer app, so to speak, is. So let's go through some things. Now, could it solve world hunger? How would it do that? 
Yeah, no, no question. I think there's a lot of excitement about that. How do we increase food production? How do we increase the, the nutritional value of food? I mean, I would just start by saying that when we talk about plants, everything we eat is genome editing, in my opinion, because you know it's been bred to have properties that are valuable to us. And how does that happen? Well, it's because plant breeders are introducing random changes into DNA of plants and then selecting for desired traits. So that's been going on for a long time, obviously, for eons probably. And the difference now with CRISPR is that now we have a technology that allows precision. So we don't have to wait for random mutations to crop up along with all sorts of other things that are maybe undesirable, but we actually can go in and precisely alter a gene or a set of genes and nothing else. And so that's very important. Drought-resistant crops? Yeah, exactly. In the Innovative Genomics Institute that I founded, which is a Berkeley-UCSF partnership, we have a, a very active program on that. And they're focused on things like increasing the number of pores in plants or decreasing them to control the amount of water flux into leaves. I mean, it's a very practical thing that one can now do with genome editing. So could you, let's move on to something else. Could you help someone regenerate a lost limb or... That's going to be tough, uh, even if we could. For something like that, there are going to be many, many genes involved. So that's part of it. And we don't know what they are. So that's a big challenge. So that there. would be a challenge. Could you revive extinct animals? Like, you know, the woolly mammoth thing always seems to interest scientists. Yeah, that, that, that comes up a lot. Uh, I think, the, you know, George Church uh, may disagree with me on this, but I think the woolly mammoth is going to be a big challenge. <laughs> More power to him if he can do it. But I think this I think, is a scientist, I think at Harvard. Right? Yeah, 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 who's talked a lot about this. I, I think more realistic, though, is, uh, you know, to revive species that have gone extinct recently, like the carrier pigeon, for example, is one that gets discussed because it has a genome that's not that different from existing animals, other birds, where you could imagine being able to re-engineer uh, changes into an existing genome to recreate the original properties of that of that bird. What about um, future babies, smarter, healthier, more beautiful, taller, whatever you want? Yeah, it's a very intriguing idea. It's also one of the most fraught uh, uh, topics in, in CRISPR because of the echoes of eugenics, thinking about safety, and I think just the, you know, the challenges, honestly, of who decides and, and how do you monitor health of somebody who's had genes edited when they were an embryo. <laughs> Um, it's a very big challenge. And so, of course, the field has been working on this for years now in terms of thinking about appropriate regulation and guidelines. And, and it's, it's an ongoing topic. And I'm sure many uh, listeners are familiar with the fact that there was an announcement about CRISPR babies a couple of years ago that really did galvanize, I think, international cooperation to ensure that that sort of inappropriate use doesn't happen again. Right. So, a couple more of the future possibilities. Coronavirus, something you're working on. How would CRISPR be applied to that? I think it's most useful in the current pandemic, certainly, as a diagnostic method. So this is another one of those things that came out of just doing fundamental biochemistry and understanding the mechanisms of these CRISPR proteins was discovering that some of them have the ability to detect and kind of report on a DNA or RNA sequence that they encounter, we think about it in the context of pandemic preparedness. So for testing, for testing. Yeah. But what about actually putting a gene into people that, you know, fixing the gene so they don't get it? 
rather than flu shots and things yeah, like that. Yeah, interesting possibility. I think not something that will happen uh, in a timeline that will affect the current pandemic. But I think this is a very interesting idea in the future is, you know, w- will we understand enough about, for example, how the immune system deals with a virus like the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes uh, COVID-19 to be able to program cells to get ready? To get ready before. Yeah. So we wouldn't need vaccines. So it's vaccination for whatever comes along, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. So this is sort of, this is this idea of an adaptive immune system. Um, so possibilities, those are more far away, but the day-to-day applications, like my brother is a doctor in San Francisco at uh, CPMC and he has muscular dystrophy. He was talking about that. Some of these diseases like sickle cell anemia, muscular dystrophy. Can you talk about things that are in the immediate yeah, well, sickle cell is is maybe the one to mention first. It's a blood disease, right? Yeah, because it's a blood disease. It's also, it's been uh, well known for decades that it's caused by a single genetic mutation that affects red blood cells. And so CRISPR is, that's the right tool. One gene, fix the gene, you know. And, and in fact, that is roaring ahead. There are multiple clinical trials ongoing currently for sickle cell disease. We've already seen the announcement about Victoria Gray, a patient who received CRISPR therapy for her sickle cell disease and has apparently been cured of her, her disease, which is just extraordinary. In fact, I just a couple of days ago, I heard from her doctor on the East Coast, uh, writing to me about, you know, just his, his thoughts about it as a, as a technology after the Nobel announcement. So I think many of us feel very excited about those opportunities. Those single gene problems are things that are less complex. Exactly. And, you know, muscular dystrophy is another great example of that, right? That's, a, that's another disease, well-known single gene that causes that disease. And CRISPR is uh, a tool that can be harnessed for that purpose as well. Any other areas? Well, I guess the other two I would mention, one is cystic fibrosis. I think that's a little farther down the line because we don't today know an easy way to get the gene editing molecules into lung cells where they would be necessary for uh, cystic fibrosis. But that is a a disease where, uh, again, there's a well-known single uh, gene that causes that disease. And, uh, and then the other area of biology that I think is likely to be impacted uh, by CRISPR in the coming, you know, five to 10 years, I would say, is neurodegenerative disease um, in the brain. I mean, this is dementia. Yeah, dementias, Parkinson's, familial forms of ALS. I mean, these are all diseases where, again, in, at least in some cases, we understand the gene or genes, sometimes it's a few genes that are involved, and CRISPR in principle could be used to, to make corrections. And breast cancer? Uh, well, breast cancer is harder. I think can't. I think any cancers. You know, there. I, I guess the way I think about CRISPR for cancer treatment is more in the context of cancer immunotherapy as a way to help the immune system fight the cancer. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the darker side of CRISPR. Obviously, it's something you think about a lot in your book, A Crack in Creation. You describe waking up in a cold sweat from a nightmare. You're introduced to Adolf Hitler, who's wearing a pig mask. Okay. <laughs> He wants to know more about your amazing technology. Uh, Do you still have nightmares like this? And what do you take away from that? Yeah. I mean, I think that dream for me, you know, came kind of relatively early on in the evolution of, you know, the development of the technology. And for me, it was kind of a crystallization, I guess, of unease that I had and just 
things that I was thinking about, kind of nebulous uh, fears that kind of all came together in that dream. And I haven't had a dream quite like that since, but it maybe that's why it really stood out for me. You know, it just, it really was kind of this moment in a way of, oh my gosh, you know. This, you woke up. Yeah. You had this dream and you woke up and then did what? Yeah. And, and I was sweating and I, you know, I just thought, oh my God, I mean, what have I done? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and, and realizing it's your little Dr. Frankenstein moment, right? I, kind of. Yeah. You know, and I, I just think that, you know, for me, that was one of the, you know, kind of stepping stones to, to getting comfortable. If I ever did, I don't know if I am comfortable, but, you know, getting more comfortable at least with realizing that, okay, I need to step out of my, my lab and I need to start, you know, talking about this publicly because this is, a technology that has uh, great risk. Right. So let's talk about that because, again, we talked about your, you are fine with gene editing for alterations that aren't passed on and essentially dies with the patient. Then germline editing, which is, explain what that is and why did you want a moratorium? Because you declared that five years ago. And it feels a little like Oppenheimer opposing the H-bomb. Well, uh, let's start with what germline editing is. So it means making uh, genetic changes that are heritable. That means they can be passed on to future generations. And so if you introduce a genetic change using CRISPR, let's say in sperm or eggs or, or an embryo that is then used for either fertilization or for you know then implantation and, and to create a pregnancy, then those genetic changes become part of all the cells in that individual and they can be passed on to future generations. So it's a it's a profound thing to think about because uh, you know it's one thing if you're if you're tweaking a gene for I don't know eye color or something it sort of sounds pretty innocuous but it's very different if you start thinking about changes that might affect somebody's you know fertility or their intelligence or their their uh, you know other properties that they might have even their physical uh, properties. And, and then, you know, what, how that might be misused. Um, we can certainly imagine lots of misuses of that. Well, one can always. It's, there's been hundreds of science yeah, fiction movies right, where that's yeah. misused, right? That's not, it's been imagined. It's been imagined, yes. So have you become more flexible on germline? Do you, like when you just said it, it, eye color is innocuous, is it? Well, is it? I, yeah, it's a great question. I, I uh, personally, would I ever use CRISPR to change eye color in, uh, in a child of mine or advise someone to do that? No, <laughs> um, I wouldn't. And, uh, and, you know, I think that with any technology, one has to balance risk versus benefit. And, you know, with something like uh, uh, embryo editing, there's still a lot of risk that goes along with it uh, that, you know, inadvertent changes are made. Or even if it was perfect at targeting the gene you were, you were targeting, we don't really know, you know, what the long-term effects of, of a lot of mutations of that nature would, would actually be in an individual. So I, I just don't, I don't think one could condone that. I, but I, I have to say that, you know, when I first started thinking about that use of CRISPR, I felt really opposed to it. Uh, I just thought, you know, I just can't, I can't see anyone uh, justifying that. But, uh, but in the intervening years, I guess I, I've come to appreciate a couple of things. One is that there's a lot of fundamental biology that isn't not known about early human development that might only be possible to discover using CRISPR in embryos that are uh, being uh, utilized for research under appropriate guidelines and not, not being allowed to develop beyond uh, you know, uh, a few days essentially in the laboratory. And so, so I've come to feel that there is value in those kinds of experiments if they're conducted 
under appropriate ethical guidelines. But I certainly don't think that the timing is right or that there's really any justification right now for using CRISPR to edit embryos that are then implanted to create a pregnancy. Right. So this is this idea of designer humans or genome engineered humans. Um, What do you think we lose if we start playing with genetics? Do we need genetic variation in life like this? They're not imperfections if you think of it that way. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's what makes human life so rich, right, is that is there is all this incredible variation. But I do think that, again, thinking, you know, some period of time in the future, let's say that we get to a point where CRISPR use in embryos is well understood. It's uh, possible to, you know, and we understand uh, genetics of certain diseases. Like, um, I'll give you one example. There's a gene that is clearly involved in high cholesterol in individuals, and and heart disease is is still a major killer in in many countries, including the U.S. Imagine that you could um, use CRISPR in families that have this gene that makes them susceptible to heart disease to give them the gene, the form of the gene that is protective against that. Would we do it? I I think it's possible, right? I think when, you know, when the technology is clearly safe and, and we're making that one tweak to one gene, I think that could be something that some families might decide uh, they want to do. Who decides from your perspective when it's dangerous? Because the National Security Agency released a report on threat assessment and include genome editing in there as a potential weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. What scares the most about where the technology could lead without any laws in place? You know, when I think about how it could get rolled out, I I think it could happen in the context of in vitro fertilization clinics that, uh, for example, offer a menu of traits and say, you know, check off. I want my baby to have this, that, the other thing. And then we're going to use CRISPR to make those tweaks. Uh, you know, I, I think that's um, makes me uncomfortable, certainly now, partly because, you know, technologically, it's just not not realistic to do that without a lot of risk. But also because of what you just said, who who, who should decide that? And how, how would you monitor the health of individuals who were born after that kind of treatment? And, and I think these are very big questions so that have yet to be addressed. Who should, from your perspective? I guess I, I do feel that, you know, if we look at, at the history of in vitro fertilization, that does offer a roadmap. Is it the right one? I'm not sure, but it, it is a roadmap. And as you may know, that technology developed in many ways, you know, in a kind of a very grassroots sort of way. There was no top-down prescription of here's how we're going to do it. It was more just initial efforts to, to use it uh, kind of in a one-off way. Louise Brown, of course, was you know very famous, you know, first uh, baby born as a result of, of IVF. And when it was clear that, you know, she was, you know, had sort of developed normally, uh, I think many people that were facing infertile, you know, lack of fertility, this became a very realistic option. So I think that we could see CRISPR getting deployed in a similar fashion where there will be kind of, you know, one-off uses here and there. And depending on the outcomes, um, that will start to be more widely adopted. We'll be right back. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with an effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. 
Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Two years ago, a Chinese scientist shocked the world. A pair of twins had been born to an HIV-positive father, and Dr. He Jianque announced he had modified their embryos to make the newborns HIV-resistant. They were the world's first CRISPR babies. The scientist who engineered them was found guilty of illegal medical practices and is currently serving a three-year prison sentence in China. What levers and regulations exist in the scientific community? Well, let's start with here in the U.S. You know, in the United States, uh, since the 1970s, we've had regulations in place that really make it impossible for anyone here to get regulatory approval to create a pregnancy. So what I understood from, from talking to the scientists who reported this, Ho Jung Kui, is that I think he really felt that this would be okay. You know, I think that he didn't think that he was breaking any laws or that he was doing anything illegal at the time. Um, I think he, he, felt he saw himself in a way as somebody who was, you know, bringing this technology to people that might in the future want to use it with their, their babies. Yeah. And he emailed you to tell you about it. Is that correct? He did. Yeah. Can you recap that? You're getting that email. What did you think? Yeah. Well, I got that email. I was actually uh, here in the U.S. I was about to leave for a conference on human genome editing, the second international summit, which was happening in Hong Kong. This was uh, two uh, Novembers ago. And, uh, And it was Thanksgiving weekend, in fact. And I received an email with the subject line, babies born. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, it was kind of one of those nightmare emails, uh, you know, that came in. Uh, <laughs> and but not a nightmare, a real one. But a real one, unfortunately, yeah, announcing the work to me or telling me about it and also attaching a draft manuscript that described very, very briefly without providing a lot of data what had been done. And so, of course, this then kicked off a frantic series of phone calls and you know, I changed my flight. I flew out, you know, like the next day to Hong Kong instead of a few days later to, so that I could get there early enough to have a meeting with Ha Jung Kui and um, also to, to talk with the committee that was organizing the meeting so that we could figure out how to manage it. Because I think speaking there, well, he was, yeah, he, he had been scheduled to speak ahead of time before we knew about the work. And so we immediately on the committee recognized that this was going to take over the whole meeting. And I don't think Ho Jung Kui recognized that right away, but, um, but you know, he soon did. That you know, He realized this is a big deal. Yeah, what did you say to him when you saw him? Well, I, um, 
I guess my first and foremost, I wanted him to talk to me. So I didn't want to immediately condemn him. And I wanted to find out what had actually been done. And so I had a meeting with him. We had a couple of meetings, in fact, where, you know, it was really just question and answer, me asking him kind of like, you know, like a reporter, right? Sort of saying, so what have you done? And tell me, tell me about, about your, your thinking. Why did you do this? And what was your plan? And, you know, I said to him, you, you realize that this, this is a really big deal. I mean, this is really going to attract international attention and, you know, not probably not positive attention. And I don't think he got that initially, but he quickly started to see that that's the way it was going. But I really, really wanted him to continue to, you know, give his talk as planned. I was worried that he might try to flee or, Mm -hmm. you know, right. And I thought that would be worse because, you know, we're scientists, we're all about data. So I thought, you know, the worst thing he could do would be to make some kind of big announcement like this and then not show any data. And then nobody can actually figure out like, what, you know, what did he do and how did he do it? And so I really wanted him to, to give the talk. And uh, unfortunately he did, you know, he did, he came and gave the talk and he got, he faced a lot of uh, questions. A lot of them were very hostile, as you can imagine. Uh, It was a whole media circus there in Hong Kong. And to his credit, in a way, he he at least showed up and gave his talk and answered the questions. Well, as one of the inventors of this, you must have been like, what did you do with my thing? Well, I was pretty unhappy. I mean, especially the more that came to light. And, and by the way, it didn't all come to light immediately, you know, only, only later that it became clear that, you know, this had been obviously going on for quite a long time and and that there were a number of people that were maybe aware of it ahead of time. And also the, the whole way that he had managed the, uh, the permissions that he got from the parents was kind of horrifying to me. That It didn't seem like, like they really understood probably what was going on. And then, and then of course, the question of these, these two girls that were born and you know, what was going to be done to monitor their health as they got older. And it's still not clear to me how that's being managed. You don't know what's happened to them? No, I don't. So these big ethical and moral lines, but there's also money flowing into the industry. And um, you have started a lot of companies. I'd like to learn about how the capital injection is changing the incentives and the speed of science. So these gene editing companies are tens of millions of dollars or more. How does CRISPR get monetized? Well, let's start with, this, you know, why, why, why would you want to? Mm-hmm. What I've come to appreciate as, as I, you know, I, I'm an academic, I've run an academic lab for my whole career, mm-hmm. but it turns out that, you know, there are many things that you, you simply can't do. An academic lab, you don't have the resources, you don't have the money, you don't have the expertise to do it. So for that reason, it's, it's often appropriate to have companies that uh, take over and, and, and start running with the technology in particular areas. And that raises questions of how do you pay for it? And if companies are, and investors are going to put money into something, they obviously want to know that they're going to reap a reward later, especially if it's very high risk, you know, something you're starting when, you know, you may not have a therapeutic for, you know, eight, 10 years. You need to know that at the end of it, you're going to have the opportunity to make money off of a product, right? And so how do you do that? Well, that's the reason for patents. And so that's why we have a patent system that gives protection to people so they uh, they can feel comfortable investing even when there's a long runway before a product is ready. So, so talk about this patent fight. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of coverage about it and you're involved in a patent fight against the co-founder of one of the big biotechs in gene editing. Talk about where it is and how did it arise? Because you both have talked about democratizing CRISPR because you want lots of people to benefit, but you all want to benefit too, presumably. Right. Well, I think anytime there's a, a you know a powerful technology that comes along, there are it's not unusual, at least, to find disputes over who owns it, 
Um, in the in the case of CRISPR, yeah, there's there's been a longstanding dispute between MIT, the Broad Institute, and the University of California about foundational intellectual property around CRISPR, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. I don't I don't think it's a real cash cow for lawyers, for one thing, and uh, <laughs> they always win. They they always win, and uh, you know, and I think I think that uh, because there is potentially a lot of money at stake, and and companies uh, do need to be able to get access, and so of course to license these. Uh, licensing right, and so you know, there's jockeying about who who's going to get access to what. So does that lead to, you have Intellia, Therapeutics and Caribou, Biosciences. This is something that will make you very wealthy too, correct? Well, I, I uh, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I think about this? I mean, um, suppose that we lose the patent dispute. Will I lose? I, I don't think so, because I think that in the end, first of all, there's lots and lots of additional patents now that exist around CRISPR. So those are obviously of value as well. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is that I think that primarily what we need right now is we need clarity around, you know, who and where do companies go and who they talk to when they need to get a license to this so that they have a legal right to use it and make products from it and, and sell it. And so I think that will happen no matter who wins, I suspect, because either party is going to want to enable the companies. Listen, I think people inventing should be able to benefit from them. Well, but I think it's, you know, you can like it or not, but that's that's how, how many people are motivated is by, you know, a profit motive, right? Am I going to make money from this? You were, I mentioned Genentech, where you were head of discovery research. Is this CRISPR invention something you could have achieved at Genentech? Because history would have been rather different. I don't think that, um, at least that I probably would have done that work because I, I don't think that I felt uh, like I could really indulge myself in these little uh, boutique pet projects about bacterial immunity that had apparently at the time nothing to do with human health. Yeah, boutique. <laughs> I love you calling your your, disco- your Nobel Prize winning discovery boutique, <laughs> but okay. Um, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. You're, there's a book being written about you by Walter Isaacson. You're getting rather famous. And I would like to know how it's changed your life after you win a Nobel Prize? Well, the, the day of the of the Nobel Prize announcement, I was t- talking with my husband, Jamie Kate, who's also a professor at Berkeley, very distinguished uh, scientist a- in his own right. And he said to me, you know, this probably won't change a lot for you, except that he said, I think now you're going to become an ambassador for science, you know, and, and that you're, he said, I think you're going to really be a symbol for women, especially in girls who will look to you as a role model, as an example of how women can, you know, do work that that becomes recognized as it might be if they were a man. And it's sort of maybe helping to break a little a little more of the glass ceiling that we feel sometimes as women, uh, especially in the STEM fields. So I think that's true. I, I agree with that. And I was struck later that day when I went over to my laboratory to have a socially distanced a little celebration how many of my students, especially women and especially my younger ones, it touched them personally. They felt so validated in a way. And that surprised me. I didn't, I didn't sort of appreciate until I saw Had it. Have you thought about that issue before this? Had you, has that been part of your career? Or you just- Honestly, I, you know, my, truthfully, I am somebody who, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but I was one of those people that didn't join, you know, Association for Women in Science, um, didn't focus on, I'm a woman in science. I always wanted to be seen as a scientist who happens to be a woman, but I really wanted the focus to be on my work. I don't think any of us want to be 
like somebody said to me, oh, maybe they gave you the prize because you're a woman. And I said, well, really? I don't think the Nobel Committee really operates that way. They don't have a history of that. <laughs> Who said that to you? Who, what non-friend, what friend who's no longer a friend said that to you? I'm not telling. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jesus. But, but you know, it, I think they said it to poke me, you know, but see what I would say. Yeah. But, you know, I think. What did you say? I said, well. I think that's a little insulting yeah. to you. Okay. <laughs> wow. But do you think about it more now? Because, you know, I understand that feeling is you don't, you want to be seen, I want to be seen as a reporter, not a woman reporter. But you do have duties. Do you feel like you have duties or responsibilities? Oh, I, I do. I, I feel that very deeply. But I, I, that's not new for me in a way, because uh, I would say over the last few years, I have seen increasing, um, you know, outreach from students. I get emails daily, every day. I get, I get emails a lot of from high school students, uh, you know, I'm writing a term paper. Can I interview you? That kind of thing. That's very sweet. And um, I think that that is a responsibility. You know, I, I really feel deeply uh, committed to the next generation of scientists. And they're the ones that are going to, you know, create the future with new science. What is your future? Well, I spoke with Emmanuel, my colleague, uh, right after the prize announcement. And she said to me, Jennifer, we can now do whatever we want. <laughs> and I said, well, that's great, but I feel like I've already been doing whatever I want in a way. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I love science so much. I'm perfectly satisfied. <laughs> I love running my lab. I, I really can't imagine giving that up. So I don't think that I, pl- you know, I certainly don't plan to make a, a big change there, but I do think that we have now maybe some opportunities to expand the projects that we're doing and involve other collaborators, other philanthropists, et cetera. So that's really where I'm looking to, you know, focus. There's not something whatever you want? There's not a whatever you want? Um, well, um, you know, I have, I, have, I have fantasies in science, of course, things that I think would be so exciting. One of them is, is very practical. It's, you know, how do we make genome editing, how do we take it from a, a technology that is obviously a wonderful tool for researchers and can be used in a few lucky patients who can afford a $2 million treatment how do we take it from where it is today, which is in that, that sort of bucket, to a place where it becomes the standard of care for people with, with genetic disease or even with sickle cell? So I'm very excited about that, for sure. And the other thing is that, you know, living here in California, and, and especially this year, I have to say, you know, we have climate change right up front, right? I mean, we have fires. We have people, I know people that lost their homes this year. I mean, it's terrible. And so I think that, you know, that's the other focus that I want to have is, is really using uh, genome editing in ways that mostly are just being discussed right now, but I think we'll have real practical applications to address the challenges of climate change. Non-burnable forests? Uh, That might be hard, but, uh, but I have other ideas. What, like? (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, one is, one is dealing with drought, right? And drought resistance. And there's some very practical ways to do that in plants. The other is, um, you know, thinking about challenges like the bark beetle, which goes after uh, trees that are dried out and destroys forests. Imagine that we could use genome editing to control the bark beetle. Perfect. Did you ever think reading that at 12 years old, The Double Helix, which is James Watson's book about the DNA, this is where it was going to end up? Never. (laughs) No? Couldn't have predicted it. Not at all. No. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. I hope you get a party, by the way. I really do. I didn't thought about it. You win it during pandemic. Do you get to go to Sweden? And- Not this year. No, they're, they're doing it. They're, they're literally doing it by Zoom. Uh, oh, and no. This year, this year. But but next year, apparently, we'll be going as, oh, as guests. Gonna- so, yeah. You mean you have to do it by Zoom and then you just get to be a guest? 
Sounds that way. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. It's a little bit of a bummer, but you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good for you. I'd be like, I get on a plane to Sweden right now. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, congratulations. And, and thank you so much for talking to me. Very nice to talk to you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba El Orbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Adam Teicholz and Paula Schumann. With music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Janine Interlandi, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get a new episode of Sway genetically engineered exactly for you, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.